Hello and welcome to IR Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. On this episode, I'm interested in Kosovo, what's going on in Kosovo about uh, recent tensions and how should we approach that situation in Kosovo. My special guest today is Dr. Helena Ivanov. Hello. Hi. Helena is an Associate Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society based in London. She completed her PhD in International Relations uh, at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Then she has Masters from Oxford, Bachelor degree from the University of Belgrade. She won many international awards and she regularly appears in uh, commentary and uh, TVs uh, globally. And Helena's main research focus is on the propaganda and violence against civilians. So that's, that's what she deals with. And I'm very happy that we can speak about Kosovo today. And the interview is divided into two parts. In the first part, we'll speak about Kosovo as a state, as a territory, and then we'll jump to the recent tensions. So let's start with the first questions. We know that the recognition of Kosovo is quite problematic because we have like 50% of states saying yes, we recognize Kosovo, and then we have around 50% which are against. So how this impacts Kosovo? Well, I think, you know, it, it makes it, this is a very difficult situation for Kosovo, right? Like on one hand, you could argue that almost 50% have recognized its independence. Most of those 50% are countries from the Western community. So obviously having the Western allies as their partner and having the recognition of Western countries is something which is very advantageous for Kosovo geopolitically. However, it is also important to note that the fact that 50% of countries haven't, or around 50% of countries haven't recognized Kosovo's independence also makes life very difficult for Kosovo in certain situations. For example, join, excuse me, joining like various international organizations, particularly the United Nations, is something which is a huge obstacle to, to Kosovo and makes then the life of Kosovo citizens sometimes quite difficult, especially because within those 50% of countries that have not recognized Kosovo's independence, we have Russia and China, who are members of the P5 of the United Nations Security Council. But also on top of that, we also have five EU member states that have not recognized Kosovo's independence, for instance, Spain. So I think in a way, Obviously, not having fully recognized independence is something that definitely obstructs Kosovo's ability to function as a fully independent and sovereign state. And I'm sure that comes to a great frustration to the Kosovo politicians and Kosovo citizens alike. How is it in practice? For instance, there is UN session and Kosovo. Is it absent completely or Kosovo is like let's say, observing state or how is it in practice? Just for my students, so they know how Kosovo can participate in the international affairs? Well, Kosovo is not a, a UN member state. And in fact, it has a problem to be part of any uh, basic organization. So no, Kosovo is not is not in any form or capacity a, a UN member state. So far, I believe that Kosovo is a member of six and observer of some other intergovernmental organizations. But no, Kosovo is not currently a UN member state. And one of the problems here, of course, and that's something that's been discussed recently, is that Serbia has been very clear that Kosovo's UN membership is the red line and is something that Serbia is not willing to allow. Um, at the same time, of course, the fact that Russia and China as P5 members of the United Nations Security Council Committee are not recognizing Kosovo, I think 
that again represents another obstacle to uh, Kosovo's UN membership. Although it should be noted that, for example, in the latest rounds of talks that we've seen earlier this year in Brussels and in Ohrid, one of the things that were part of the French-German suggestion was that Serbia was not to block Kosovo's accession to any international organization. And whilst neither Brussels nor Ohrid deals explicitly mention the United Nations, I think it is pretty clear to everyone that not obstructing Kosovo's membership to any uh, international organization also includes um, the United Nations. But again, th there is a question in, in a hypothetical universe in which Serbia was to accept Kosovo's membership to the United Nations, there is still a question as to whether Russia and or China uh, would be willing to to allow Kosovo to join the the United Nations, and and I think this is another way in which like Kosovo finds itself in a political conundrum due to not having full recognition. So on on one hand, of course, Serbia does not recognize it, which makes the situation quite complicated. And I think some countries, due to their political alliances to Serbia, are also not. Uh, recognizing Kosovo's independence. So in a universe in which Serbia recognizes Kosovo's independence, independence, at least some of these countries might be willing to follow. However, there are countries that are just not recognizing Kosovo's independence due to their own internal political questions. For example, in Chinese case, that's Taiwan. In Spain, Spain's case, that's Catalonia, which is why some of the countries, I believe it's Spain amongst them too, have been clear that irrespective of what Serbia decides to do on the issue, they themselves will not recognize um, Kosovo's independence. And I think that's just, you know, makes makes their situation more complicated. Right. That, that's good to know, because the reason why I ask is Kosovo as, as a hot topic nowadays doesn't de facto have uh, any any representative, you know, in UN, in all those institutions. So how do we know what Kosovo wants, what Kosovo thinks and what Kosovo government, you know, is, is going to do or has done before if there is no international recognition as a, as a voice of Kosovo? Well, well, you know, I, I think I think that whilst Kosovo is not a, a UN member state, I think it is nevertheless like quite clear where politically Kosovo sits. I think on one hand, you know, we have the United Nations mission in Kosovo, we have the EU mission in Kosovo, we have the K4 peacekeeping troops, NATO peacekeeping troops in Kosovo. Um, the international community and the political representatives of various states are highly engaged with the Kosovo government. Uh, many of the countries that have recognized Kosovo's independence also want to see Kosovo join the EU, join NATO, join the UN. So I think that, you know, there there is quite a lot of clarity in terms of where politically Kosovo stands generally on one hand, but I also think that due to the very high engagement uh, between the Kosovo governments and, and the UN and all of these international organizations and the relevant political representatives, I think we do have a relatively clear picture where the individual governments also stand in terms of what they support, what they don't support. So, you know, I think whilst Kosovo obviously lacks bits and pieces that many other countries have that are fully recognized, uh, independent sovereign states. I nevertheless do think that Kosovo is sufficiently engaged that we can get a pretty good, like, understanding of how Kosovo would right. would position Ex itself. Excellent. You mentioned EU. How how does EU approach uh, affect Kosovo? Because we know Serbia and Kosovo they both have a sort of EU aspiration. Mm -hmm. So how what's the role of the European Union, and how is the European Union voice present at in Kosovo? like in, in practical life. Yeah, well, the, the European Union is obviously one of the key 
factors in, in the Kosovo-Serbia talks. Of course, the EU is the key mediator and the key negotiator. So politically speaking, obviously, I think of all international community representatives, the EU probably has the highest, most important role in, in the region. Um, I think, of course, like the fact that both Serbia and Kosovo want to join the EU and Serbia has been in, in accession talks for quite some time right now. I think the EU often uses the EU membership as sort of leverage. For example, if we look at the recent talks in Brussels and in Okrit earlier this year, we will see that one of the things that were also mentioned in those deals is that if the two sides, Kosovo and Serbia, fail to follow through on what they've committed to doing in these two deals, uh, this this could come at the cost of the accession talk. So I think the European Union is sort of trying to find a way to get these two sides at the table to try and find a solution that's middle ground, that's acceptable to both sides, that will ultimately like mean that people can have normal, functional, peaceful coexistence, um, that that both states can have no, to, to get to like, you know, fully formalized, full normalization of, of these relations. And of course, one of the things that they're sort of using as a leverage in these talks to, to push the sides to really like agree upon something and then follow through on what they've promised is is the EU membership. Um, so that's that's I think the key way in which the EU participates here. But I think you know the the latest round of escalations, I think casts doubt on how capable is the EU really in practice to to force the two sides to follow through on what they've agreed to. And and I also think that you know uh, the key agreement for the normalization of relations between Kosovo and Serbia was the Brussels agreement from 2013. And to this day, many aspects of the Brussels agreement have not been fulfilled. Notable is the creation of the Association of Serb Municipalities in the north of Kosovo, which is predominantly inhabited by Kosovo Serbs. And in a way, the, the failure to create this association is one of the key reasons why we're seeing this uh, latest round of escalations. And I think, you know, if, if you have the EU as the key mediator who's unable to get the two sides to implement something they've accepted over 10 years ago at this point, I think that kind of raises thorny questions about how effective the EU actually is in mediating and leading these talks. And and why why, why do you think that EU is not able to do, you know, the deal? Like like what what's what's the main obstacle or what are the, the issues that EU EU has with with this negotiation? Because EU, you know, 400 million people, you know, many countries like France, you know, Germany, like powerful countries, and still we don't have results, as, as you stated, you know, which, which I think in terms of the European Union diplomacy might be a little bit, you know, disputable issue. Well, I think to, to start with, it was always any anyone who, who, who was in charge of leading these talks would have found themselves in a very difficult situation because... At the end of the day, we're talking about two sides with mutually exclusive political aims. On, on one hand, we have Serbia, who recognizes, who refuses to recognize Kosovo as, as an independent state and wants full sovereignty over Kosovo. At the same time, you have Kosovo, who wants nothing but uh, total sovereignty and, and independence and full control over their territory. So to find a solution that's acceptable to both sides was going to be a very difficult task to, to begin with. And I think that's like the first problem that the EU has, how to find something which recognizes and respects the legitimate grievances of Serbs, the legitimate grievances of Kosovars, the legitimate political interests of Serbs, the legitimate political interests of Kosovars. That was always like going to be very difficult from, from the very beginning. I think additionally to that, the problem is that the EU doesn't really have an enforcement mechanism because whilst the EU can lead and mediate and talk and try and use some pressure points that it has, at the end of the day, these are sovereign nations and you can't just 
tell and enforce something upon these sovereign nations. And whilst, you know, the, the accession talks are something that the EU has used as, as leverage so far, at this stage, I'm almost wondering whether and how strong the EU accession is as a sort of pressure point. Because, for example, in, in, in January, the Henry Jackson Society, the think tank that I work for, has uh, published a report on the pro-Russian sentiment in Serbia and in Hungary. And for the purposes of that report, we've conducted polling on a representative sample. And one of the questions that we've asked people in Serbia is, if the EU membership referendum was held tomorrow, how would you vote? And for the first time, we're seeing that more people would vote against joining than in favor of joining. Um, I think partly this is a consequence of the fact that the accession talks have dragged on so long that people have lost confidence that Serbia will at any point really join this bloc. So, so I think that the key tool that the EU had at its disposal, which is the EU membership, um, is now perhaps not as strong as it was, say, five years ago. And I think that's also where the EU finds itself in trouble. And I think finally, you know, if, if you look at some of the some of the solutions that have been offered, I, I just often think that, you know, the EU leaves these talks overly optimistic because, for example, if we look at the statements after Brussels and Okrit talks earlier this year, uh, Borrell, who was the EU representative in these talks, was super optimistic, very happy that, you know, the two sides have reached some kind of a deal. But there were questions from the very beginning because these deals were not signed. They were verbally accepted, but in a way legally binding. But then if you've listened to the statements from Prime Minister Kurti or President Vucic, you would hear a very different portrayal of what actually happened in 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 these talks. So in, in that sense, I just think you know we need a more realistic um, approach to this problem and acceptance that you know we're talking we we are leading the talks between the two sides with mutually exclusive political aims, both of whom occasionally have very difficult politicians in charge, and and just a more realistic approach to to this whole thing. I would be my key advice to the representatives of the European Union. How do you see Borrell and Lychak, two people who are often negotiating? Because on the one hand, Borrell is well known for being super optimistic about each negotiation, and Lychak is from Slovakia, which doesn't recognize Kosovo, which psychologically, you know, it makes little bit of doubts, you know, how this person is going to negotiate Kosovo and Serbia. So in terms of Serbia and Kosovo, can we say a few, few sentences how these two understand or how they see Lajcak and Borel? Those two, do they have respect in Balkan? Well, if you if you look at how the official government representatives speak about the two of them, I think they do enjoy great amount of respect. I think, you know, every time when we have these talks, you would hear PM Kurti, as well as President Vucic, being very like thankful to Mr. Lajcak and Mr. Borrell and very appreciative of their contribution to these talks. So I think on like a sort of governmental level, you clearly have quite a lot of respect for what Lajcak and Borrell are trying to do. But I think if you just walk down the streets of Belgrade and, and just speak to ordinary people, I, no, I, I don't think that they enjoy uh, that much respect. I think, for example, data that we have from the polling that, that I've mentioned from that report, for example, we've we've asked people the, the relations between the EU and Serbia have declined over the last 10 years. Why do you think that is the case? And most people say things like the EU always blackmails us. Uh, the EU does not accept us for who we are. So I think, you know, you have that one element where like almost any EU representative in charge of leading the Serbia-Kosovo talks is by an ordinary Serb perceived as like forcing Serbia to make concessions that they don't want to make, forcing Serbia to give up part of the territory that a lot of Serbs consider to be the heartland of, of, of Serbia, which is, you know, the famous slogan, Kosovo is the heartland of Serbia. So I think you have that sentiment on one hand, but I think then on the other hand, 
I also think that a lot of Serbs are just like losing confidence that the EU is even capable of, of leading these talks. And, you know, on one hand, you have this deal from 2013 that was meant to be the beginning of the normalization process. That deal clearly has not been fulfilled. Then all of a sudden, we now have two new deals, one in Brussels, one in Auckland earlier this year. And then after those two deals, all that we can see is probably the largest escalation that we've seen in many, many years. So I just think that a lot of people have like lost confidence in the EU's capability to to really uh, lead these talks. So I think that's the sort of like mixed sentiment among the Serbian among the Serbian citizens. And and can you see any alternatives for these talks? For instance, the United United States will will get more involved, perhaps the UN, you know, or other institutions, or or basically the EU is the only one that can can make it happen. Well, in in a way, of course, politically speaking, it makes sense that this is the EU, right? Yes. Both geographically, just where Serbia and Kosovo are located, but also like because of the political aspirations of Serbia and Kosovo to eventually join the EU. So I think in terms of like what makes sense, yes, the EU obviously presents itself as the most uh, reasonable uh, way to 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 manage these talks. But, you know, you also have two other groups that are in charge. So on one hand, like you have the United States, which I think in, in recent months particularly has stepped up its involvement in these talks and in trying to resolve this problem. And I, I think that the more bits and pieces of the previously signed deals with the EU are not fulfilled, the more we will see the United States stepping up its game in the region. Uh, but I also think, you know, we have the Quint, which is France, Germany, Italy, um, the UK and the United States. So we, we have other avenues in other countries that that are involved. And, you know, if you look at, for example, last year, when, when we've had another round of escalations about the car registration plates and travel documents, um, in the end, the United States was the one that that resolved the problem by pressing uh, Prime Minister Kurti to delay the implementation of the car re-registration policy. So I think, you know, a lot of people still do have confidence in the U.S.'s ability to to resolve things when when they really escalate. Yeah. The last question about these negotiations is about President Vucic. And I would like to know your opinion how strong is his role in these negotiations and how Serbians and people in Kosovo understand Vucic's role? Because I, on, on one hand, I, I read few reports that he's trying to delay those negotiations and doing some steps, you know, to a little bit uh, bypass those agreements. On the other hand, I heard the same about the Kosovo side. And some of my students are a little bit confused. So is there anyone who is like deliberately postponing the results or it just that lack of political will to come together to the table and agree on the deal? I mean, so 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 to, to start with, like the, the you know, the delays, I think both sides are purposefully trying to fulfill as little as they have to. And, and if you read some of these deals, in a way, they are a bit vague. They always leave things up to interpretation. And, you know, from a strictly realist IR point of view, both sides will always try to do the minimal amount that they need to do to say, ha, we fulfilled this bit that we said that we'll fulfill, obviously not trying to go above and beyond. So, so I think that's just present on, on both sides. I think Prime Minister Kurti, on the other hand, is, is quite clear about not being willing to fulfill the parts of the deal. So, so, and this is the association of the Serbian municipalities, right? It always comes back to that. 
But um, the, the the association of Serb municipalities in, in the north, again, predominantly inhabited by the Serbs, is something that was agreed and accepted by Kosovo and by Serbia back in 2013. And now with Prime Minister Kurti, we have a situation where it seems to be the case that he refuses to actually create it. He's saying that he's afraid that this is going to be New Republika Srpska, that this is going to be something that will obstruct Kosovo's ability to, to function as a state. Leave aside whether or not that's actually true or not, whether this is something that would happen in practice or not, if the association was to be created. We have one side that is being very clear about not being willing to fulfill something which is part of the deal. And that's a step further than what we've seen so far, because usually what we've seen so far is like, some deal is achieved, neither of the sides is completely happy with it. So they're just trying to fulfill the bare minimum that they need to and still, you know, get some leeway for themselves. But now we find ourselves in a unique position where one side is just explicitly refusing to do something. And, and I think that's that's exactly the reason why we are seeing this unprecedented level of criticism towards the Kosovo government from the Western, especially uh, from the Western allies in the international community, because it is it is now very clear that, you know, he's just unwilling to to complete um, what what his government, previous governments of Kosovo have, have committed to doing. And that's clearly creating an impasse because Serbia's basically saying until we fulfill the 2013 bits and pieces of the Brussels agreement and notably the association of certain municipalities that there is nothing else to talk about. You, if you've asked me about like the political position of President Vucic, I think he is from the point of view of Serbia, uh, he's completely in charge of, of these talks. Uh, President Vucic is basically the center of political power in, in Serbia. All the key executive political questions, all the key foreign affairs questions, all the key domestic questions, all of that is is led and controlled by the President Vucic. Right. That's that's quite interesting to hear because it's 10 years, over 10 years almost, and, and we still are at the basically the same point when we when we go and read the argument and see what's going on at the moment. So I think the hope is the only only thing that remained from that that negotiations at the moment. Great. Now let's go to the latest tensions in Kosovo. But before we go there, let's explain to my audience and students who is in Kosovo at the moment in terms of police, K4, what sort of nationalities live in Kosovo, because, you know, I think it's good to start with the basics so people have mm -hmm. some opinion because many times we read Kosovars are or Albanians are, Serbians are, and people are not 100% sure who is who. So, yeah. so if, if you can clarify that basics a little bit and tell us a little bit about who, what is K4, because I think not many people mm. know, you know, and, and what is NATO-led, you know, police or, or forces, if, if it's the same thing or not. So mm -hmm. we are clear about the basics yeah. and then we will jump to the causes of those tensions. Yeah. Thank well, you. Well, I'm just going to try and give as quick of a context yeah. as possible. Yeah. So, um, Kosovo has been uh, populated by Kosovo Albanians, ethnically Albanians, or Kosovars, so those two are kind of sometimes used interchangeably, um, for many, many years. And, and the questions of their autonomy from, from Serbia has been politically relevant basically since, ever since I can remember. And, and surely the first skirmishes and difficult questions about this were particularly raised during the 80s and after Tito's death, although many questions were also raised even during, during Tito's rule. 
in the 1990s, especially when Milosevic assumed power and took away all the autonomy that Kosovo at the time had as one of the two provinces in Serbia, things became increasingly more difficult. From 1991 to 1995, we're seeing the violent breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And then in 1998, we see violence erupting in Kosovo again. Ultimately, that violence erupting led to the 1999 NATO bombing of Yugoslavia because NATO was of the view that, you know, Ser Serbia and the JNA, the military troops at the time, um, were, you know, having a crackdown on the lives of, of, of people in Kosovo and that something had to be done. Uh, an interesting point perhaps about this NATO bombing is that uh, this uh, intervention did not have United Nations Security Council's approval because of Russia and China. So I think, again, we're seeing that dimension where Russia's and China's position really matters in how a lot of things play out. Um, then fast forward to 2008, which is when Kosovo unilaterally declares independence from Serbia and over the years gets about 50% of states to recognize its its independence, although still not Russia and China and not five EU member states, which I think are the sort of like key countries that Kosovo is trying to uh, change their mind in a way, or ideally would like to have their, their mind changed regarding Kosovo's um, independence. Uh, basically, ever since, you know, NATO bombing in 1999 onwards, uh, the international community has been heavily involved in how Kosovo operates and what is going on in Kosovo. So clearly we have like the political representatives that are in charge of like the talks between uh, Belgrade and Pristina on one hand, but also like we have the military presence. So K4 or Kosovo force is the NATO peacekeeping troop that's based there. And uh, one of the things that I often say, because, you know, last year we've seen some escalations, just now we're seeing escalations again, in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, of course, everybody is very concerned. Are we about to see another war in Europe? Um, is this region going to go up in flames again? Um, and what I always say to people is, whilst there are important analogies and political implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine in Kosovo, on Kosovo and Serbia, this is not the same situation. And it's not the same situation exactly because K4 is there. Like the NATO peacekeeping troops K4 serve as the guarantor of peace. Their presence there serves as a very good deterrent to prevent both Belgrade and Pristina from escalating tensions massively. And even if either of the sides was to really escalate the tensions massively, the K4 and the international community generally would be able to respond quickly and swiftly. So I do not think that there is a realistic possibility of a Ukraine scenario in, in the Serbia and Kosovo case because of that uh, really big involvement of the international community and what is going on in Kosovo. And finally, in terms of like the ethnic balance, what I think is the key bit for, for the purposes of these talks, uh, Kosovo is overall predominantly inhabited by Kosovars or Kosovo Albanians, uh, with the exception of the North, where the majority of the people who live there are ethnically uh, Serbs or Kosovo Serbs. Um, and, and that's where this whole political conundrum basically starts because the 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 Kosovo Serbs who live in the north were sort of geographically concentrated uh basically do not want Pristina to to be in charge of them they they do not recognize Pristina as the capital of Kosovo because they do not recognize Kosovo they do not recognize the authority of any Kosovo institution and that that's that's where the idea of this association of Serb municipalities sort of comes in as as the idea that like those people who live there could have some level of autonomy right. uh, and have and be represented by people that they consider to be their legitimate representatives. We, we also know that many people left Kosovo. So in terms of demographics, 
the Albanians living in Kosovo or Kosovars and the Serbians. Are these two communities stable in terms of population or one is expanding, another one is shrinking or, or how is it? Well, I think over the years, the, the um, Kosovo Serb population has, has been declining. But I think, you know, that in terms of in terms of people leaving, I think that's just a general across the board problem, not just in the Western Balkans, but for the purposes of these talks, we might as well focus on the Western Balkans. It's it's the brain drain, you know, it's right. many people seeking just better life opportunities. And, and I think that stands true for Serbia, stands true for Croatia, stands true for uh, Kosovo. It's just, it's, it's, right. it's just a state of affairs here. And I think at this point, like on one hand, uh, you know, Germany, for example, really needs working force like engineers and, and drivers and stuff like that. And people from the Balkans go to do that. And then many other people go to study abroad and then they somehow stay. So brain drain is just like a massive, massive problem in, in, in the Western Balkans. And I think, you know, if you look at, for example, the Croatian case, I think if other Western Balkan countries join the EU, uh, the brain drain is probably going to get worse than it is right now because it will just be very much easier um, to to go. Right. One of the issues I had in Scotland when I spoke with my students was why everything is around ethnicity in Kosovo. Like, for instance, there is a murder and instead of saying, oh, he is a murderer, they say he is Serb or he is Albanian. Or, or if there is any incident, it's always the ethnicity there, instead of being like he is a looter or he is a bad person doing bad things, you know. So, so is that sensitivity about ethnicity one of the key issues that is in Kosovo? Well, I'm going to I'm going to step in a little bit with my, my some of my PhD knowledge and, and also with something private. So I, okay. I've been, ethnicity is not just the you know question when it comes to Serbs and Kosovars for example I happen to be in a relationship with someone who was born and raised in Croatia and who is of Croatian ethnicity and bear in mind the war between Serbia and Croatia ended in 1995 and we are in 2023 and despite so many years almost 30 years going by since that war ended uh the two of us occasionally run into people who look at us very weirdly because I'm ethnically Serb and he's ethnically Croatian. We had a few instances where people shouted derogatory and hateful terms at both of us for being in an ethnic relationship. Um, and if if that happens, you know, in a case where the war ended almost 30 years ago, you can only imagine how much that then remains important between the Serbs and Kosovars, where like the, the problems between the two countries have not have not been resolved. And this is where we we come into what I have basically studied for most of my PhD, which is I think that ethnicity, by and large, became a sort of fabricated problem that has been pushed for in the media discourses, in the attempt to create this famous dichotomy, us and them, these are our friends, these are our enemies kind of a thing. And, and the reason why I'm saying fabricated is because if, for example, you look at Bosnia during Tito's time, you will find that many people used to call Bosnia the Little Yugoslavia due to the unbelievably high number of ethnically mixed marriages, which I think is a very good pointer as to how integrated all of these communities were. And, and I think that, you know, when, when Tito died and when the country faced a substantial economic crisis during the 80s, um, there was a political vac vacuum, which was in almost all countries of the former Yugoslavia, filled in by national nationalists, who then created all of these like ethnic related problems. And here maybe I can tell you an interesting anecdote just to kind of 
illustrate how important the media is in all of this. So as part of my PhD, one of the things that I've done is I've done interviews with people who were journalists back at the time during the 1990s. And I spoke to one journalist who used to work for the radio and television of Serbia, the Serbia's national broadcaster, like the equivalent of the BBC. And in the end, he was fired and suspended for refusing to disseminate what was hateful propaganda back at the time. But in late 1990s, so before the war started, a story came to RTS that a Croatian guy beat up a Serbian guy. So they sent this journalist that I've interviewed to like investigate what happened. Turns out that this Croatian guy's daughter was dating this Serbian guy. The Serbian guy cheated on his daughter. So he was just like really angry at him for doing that to his daughter. And he slapped him a few times. So this journalist that I've interviewed calls RTS and says, this is not ethnic based. This is not nation based. This is just like a private thing. And it happens to be the case that one of them is a Serb, one of them is a Croat. So he says, I'm not going to publish the story. RTS suspends him and airs the story anyway and says, Ustasha beats up our Serb friend. Basically okay. fabricating that this has been an ethnic based violence, that this has something to do with like, you know, World War II legacy of Ustasha. And it had nothing to do with that. And having spent four years looking at broadcasts and stories that were aired, this is not, this story is not an exception. This was almost like a rule of like placing people against one another, saying that someone's ethnicity is immediately telling of their bad intentions towards you. It's what the media has done. It's what the politicians have done. And they have created this toxic atmosphere. And, and unfortunately, whilst of course things are getting better somewhat in, in Bosnia and in Croatia, because so many years have passed, in Kosovo, it's just not. And I think both President Vucic and Prime Minister Kurti and their media that they control continue to push for these toxic narratives, which which I think really like make it very difficult for people who live down there to really live in Kosovo. Thanks for that explanation. And let's talk about the latest tension. So we read some stories that the NATO forces were attacked and injured. And then we read a few stories that it was because of that and that. So what's really going on in Kosovo at the moment in 2023? We are recording this in June. Yeah. Okay. So this is this is what happened. So all of this happens firstly in the backdrop of the Serbian political representatives, namely Srpska Lista, abandoning all the Kosovo uh, political institutions. I believe back in November 2022. So that's when they like sort of refused to partake in in the governance of of Kosovo and to like fulfill the roles that they've had. And one of the key arguments for doing that was, of course, that. Prime Minister Kurti is refusing to implement the creation of the Association of Serbian Municipalities. Fast forward, uh, everybody knows that we are about to have local elections in April in the four northern municipalities that are predominantly inhabited by the Serbs. And between like the, the Srpska Lista leaving the institutions and the elections, the international community was trying to find a way to motivate the Serbian political representatives and the Serbian citizens who live in the north to partake in these elections because they've said until the terms and conditions that have been agreed upon are fulfilled, we are boycotting the institutions and we're boycotting the elections. In the aftermath, we also found out from President Macron that he has pressured the Kosovo authorities not to have these elections unless they can find a way to get Serbs to participate in them. Uh, be that as it may, we, we get to April of 2023, the elections are happening and the Serbs are boycotting them. Because the Serbian political representatives boycotted them and the Serbian citizens who live in Kosovo boycotted them, the turnout was historically low. 
it's like 3.47% of people voted, which I think amounts to like just over a thousand people. So you have four mayors that are elected by like just over a thousand people who are also of Kosovo or ethnic Albanian, like ethnically Albanian, and they get elected as mayors. And, and from the very beginning, of course, there is a question like, do these people have the actual mandate to govern? Like, do, do these people have legitimacy to, to govern? And then Prime Minister Kurti decides to send these four mayors to take an oath and to work from their offices, which, as we later on found out, was, you know, he was acting against the advice that he received from his Western allies. The ethnic Serbs have decided to boycott this because they don't think these people have the mandate. They don't think these people have the legitimacy to govern. And as the protests erupted, the Kosovo police which came to the north of Kosovo, yet another point of contention, uh, has thrown shock bombs and tear gas on the citizens who were protesting. K4 then decided to do what its mandate is, which is stand between the two sides and kind of act. And in a few days, because the protests basically continued, because Prime Minister Kurti was sending these mayors into their offices and the Serbs were showing up the protests, in one of those days, uh, some protesters who are ethnically Serbs have attacked for troops that that were there and ever since we find ourselves in in this political in this political conundrum what i think distinguishes this escalation from any previous ones that we've seen is the amount of criticism that the kosovo government has received from its traditional partners and particularly the western allies we've seen the united states making it very clear that like what what, what prime minister kurti is doing is not okay we've heard macron say that Having the elections in the first place is something that clearly should not have happened, uh, at least not without the participation of, of Serb political parties, as well as the ethnic Serbs who live in the north of Kosovo. And we are yet to see what happens here. I mean, I, I think, you know, th there is a very clear path out of this political conundrum. And that political conundrum is to have a new round of elections, which now seems to be on the table and something that people are sort of trying to make happen. But two, like Serbs must take part in these elections because I just don't think that without participation of the Serbian political representatives and the ethnic Serbs who live in the north, you you can't you can't have legitimate mayors. Like it's just not gonna it's it's just not gonna happen. And and of course the the long term solution to getting out of this political conundrum is to just get the two sides to do what they've committed to doing. Because I don't really see a point in having more deals signed and or verbally accepted if the previous ones that we have have not been fulfilled and in some cases are now actively being violated. That, that's, that's very interesting because it, it sounds like the Serbians are without representation at the moment yes. in Kosovo. And, and yes. that's, that's super dangerous because I think some people might take it as a pretext for further action. I think, you know, the, the, the presence of the international community, both politically, but also like militarily, as, as in K4, is, is what plays the key role in, in, you know, keeping things perhaps not calm, but manageable. Um, but, you know, long-termly, like, you know, at some point you just have to ask yourself, like, you know, the... It's the people who live there, like forget about their ethnicity, it doesn't matter are they Kosovo or Serb, they can't have a normal life. It is really hard to live like this. Yeah. And 
and and this is just not sustainable forever. So we really need to find a way to 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 get these people to coexist and to function without always having to have a third party being there to kind of resolve or serve as a deterrent for for any escalations. Because I just think that ordinary people who live there are the people who really pay the price, and that's yes. just not good. Yeah. And, and did you, during the election, did you have any international observers who were basically guaranteed to both sides that all the votes are counted properly, and, yeah, and there that, is that there is not, no manipulation or something? No, but that was not that, that that was not a problem at all. Mm -hmm. Okay, right now, possible because because the Serbs were quite clear: we are not participating. Right. So, so, so for, they, they basically said this from the get go that that you yeah, know no, no. Whatever... it was very it was very clear from hmm. the get go that they will not be hmm. like for example my think tank hosted an event in in late March on Kosovo and Serbia and we've had MEP Viola von Kramon we've had Petrit Selimi uh, we've had Tatiana Lazarevic and we've had Tim Judah so we had like a very good balance of like people who are internationally covering the story and are politically involved in the story but we've also had a representative of Kosovo and representative of Kosovo Serbs and. And one of the key questions that we were trying to address is like these elections and, and and the panel basically agreed, despite, you know, it was a very diverse panel of very like interesting and insightful um, perceptions and views. And it was a very good dialogue. I think I think that 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 event that we've done was like a very good illustration that there is a way to have a proper, normal conversation, even when people have certain political disagreements with different political perceptions. But one of the things where everybody has agreed is that it will be very hard to say that these elections have any legitimacy if the Serbs are not participating. So that was very clear from the beginning that they will not partake in these in these elections. Do you, do you feel any forces from the major powers influencing what's going on in Kosovo at the moment? Especially, I mean, Russia, China, you know, because for some states, you know, not stable Kosovo might be in an interest. You know, in, in geopolitical sense. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm just I just want to make sure you know if if there is mm -hmm. any any influence or or not at all. Look, I I think that Russia's influence in the region, not influence, involvement in the region, is massively like overstated at the moment. Okay. It is true that whenever an escalation happens in Kosovo, we will hear. Russian representatives and their view about Kosovo is no secret and they will reiterate it. But there are also, you know, because Serbia hasn't imposed sanctions against Russia, uh, Sputnik and Russia today are both operating in Serbia. So, of course, we have centralized Putin propaganda disseminated in Serbia. There are also various Telegram channels and other social media platforms through which Russia is disseminating its propaganda. But to, to think that any of these escalations have happened because Russia is pushing for them is, is I just think, overstating what, at the end, Russia really is. I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is clearly not going in line with what Putin has probably imagined when he decided to start this whole thing. I just don't think that he has the capacity to really be substantially involved in what is going on in, in Serbian and Kosovo. Is he benefiting from unstable Kosovo? Sure. Is he benefiting from the deterioration between Serbia and from the deterioration of relations between Serbia and the EU? Sure. Will he invest some efforts into seeing that happen? Yes. But his realistic ability to do that is, I would say, quite limited. And in terms of what is actually happening on the ground right now, th th there are no official ways of 
like proving or showing how exactly has Russia been involved in this escalation, with the exception of like, you know, Zakharova making a statement, but that, that's diff- that's more like post-factum commenting rather than like, you know, I think when it comes to China, you know, again, you know, Serbia, Serbia is clearly playing this balancing act between the West and the East. And obviously that that works well for both Russia and China because they have a geographically European country that, you know, is not in the EU, that who knows if it's going to enter the EU, that's clearly, you know, not aligning its foreign policy with the EU. But I'm not really sure how much actual like effort into meddling into day-to-day politics are Russia or China in investing. I think in that sense, like the engagement from the like Western part of the international community is 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 much larger, larger and to be frank, more constructive for the region as well. Many students ask me, and and especially in in Scotland, why the international community accepts Kosovo but doesn't accept Crimea, because these two examples are always you know shuffle around whatever argument is pro or against. So can we clarify a little bit on this? Well, so philosophically speaking, so let's let's just step back from the Kosovo and Crimea cases as such. Having having done masters in political theory, I'm somewhat well versed in political theory debates. And this debate between like the right to self-determination on one hand and then the right to territorial sovereignty and integrity are are even philosophically like an abstract when we're not thinking about any like clear case example, sometimes hard to resolve because you on one hand always very intuitively want to recognize people right people's right to self-determination and, and you understand that if like if people don't identify with their governing bodies and if they want something different, you are then and you force them to have whatever they don't recognize as legitimate, you're very likely to have like sort of dysfunctional system. So in that sense, like the right to self-determination kind of intuitively comes to us as the right solution, right? But then at the same time, if if we were to say, you know, if, if we take that to the extreme and give everybody all the time the right to self-determination, and in theory, again, this is all very theoretical, you know, I my, my apartment could identify as like, we're going to have our own authority. And of course, there are some other benefits of the right to territorial integrity and territorial sovereignty. So I remember, you know, when when we've done this analytical political philosophy debates and we, we were looking at like the clash between these two rights, it was always very hard to find the balance, right? And I think then going through history in many cases where this question has been raised, it was always very difficult to kind of decide in which cases something's okay and in which cases something is not. And to get to the point of Crimea and Kosovo, well, firstly, I think that, you know, it's, it became a lot about the way of how and why things have happened. So if you look at the Kosovo's case, you know, we, we are talking about a place where, you know, people have been systemically discriminated against. They have been seeking autonomy and seeking autonomy and seeking autonomy. And then you have the war and then you have the intervention. And if you look at it like ethnically, it's it's very clear who's the who's the majority. Whereas I think in the Crimean case, the international community thinks that this was a different process. This was a process of annexation. So I think a lot of this has to do with like the ways in which these kinds of things happen, which I think like are a very important aspect of of this debate. You know, I think I think when when thinking about like whether someone has the legitimacy to declare independence or not, and what do we recognize and what do we not recognize, 
the way how something is done, I think really, really matters. And and in a way you can't argue that Kosovo was annexed. The last question for today's interview is about the US military base in Kosovo, which not many students or audience know that there is a big military base in Kosovo uh, led by the American forces. How this impacts Kosovo and what people living in Kosovo think about this base? Does it represent sort of security guarantee from the US side? Or does it represent an obstacle for the peace talks with Serbia? No, I definitely wouldn't say that it represents any obstacle to the peace talks. I think, you know, even even now in the latest round of escalations where some protesters have attacked K4 troops, if you look at like the official statements from the Serbian government or other politically relevant and influential people in Serbia, you'll see, I think, you know, the relationship between Serbia and NATO is a complicated one. Like, you know, in, in the report that I've mentioned on pro-Russian sentiment, one of the things that we've also asked is like, if the NATO membership referendum was held tomorrow, how would you vote? And about 1.2% of people said, I would vote in favor. So people don't like, in Serbia, people don't like NATO, you know, because of the 1999 bombing. And however, when it comes to K4 troops, I think most of the establishment understands that K4's presence is actually quite good. And that in many instances, K4 really is a buffer zone between the two conflicted sides, that K4 is providing security guarantees for many people who are also ethnically Serb who, who live in Kosovo. So I think the relationship towards K4, at least from like the government and, and all the other politically influential people, I think they... I think they support K4. I think they understand that K4's presence is beneficial for both sides in this particular context. And I think for Kosovo, like, you know, even in, even now when we are having this unprecedented level of criticism from the West towards the Prime Minister Kurti, if, if you listen to his statements or the statements of anyone who's politically relevant and influential in Kosovo, you will see that America is seen as Kosovo's strongest, most stable, most important ally. So I think, you know, that that base over there is would not be something that would be in any way criticized or seen negatively. I think, you know, Kosovo very clearly has America to thank to for lots of political progress that has been made because America has always been a very strong partner of, of Kosovo. Said Dr. Helena Ivanov, and thank you very much for your time and interview for the honest and, and educational insights for my audience and students. We really appreciate your time and we hope that we can maybe record the next interview later this year with some updates about the Kosovo. Thank you very much and see you next time.